Welcome to Raising Standards with Rhiannon Evans and Max Smith, a true Roman history podcast for true Romans. Hail Caesar. Welcome to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome. I'm Rhiannon Evans. And I'm Matt Smith. And this is our season one wrap-up podcast because we made it to the end of the season. Yay! It took a while. So I thought that the best way to talk about uh, season one is to have a, a chat between yourself and myself and give our impressions about what we thought of the season and how they sh- push different storylines and show different things and uh, how great it all was and uh, how cool Pullo is and that sort of talk. Then we might go into a, a few questions from the audience, uh, which some lovely listeners have given us. So what did you think of HBO's Rome? I really enjoyed it more than I remembered. Uh, yeah. I, I remember being a bit snippy about it, I think, the first time around. I think because I went into it thinking that it gave short shrift to the female characters, which, it, you know, we, we'll talk about that in a bit more detail perhaps, but definitely the male characters are the lead characters. But I do think they do some interesting things with the female characters. I remember the first time around thinking, oh, Artia, you know, she was known as this kind of above reproach. Matrona, you know, a respectable Roman woman. What have they done to her? They just want to have lots of sex scenes and nudity. And it just seemed to be just for the sake of of having this gratuitous sex in the plot. But actually, mm-hmm. I think that there were more interesting things going. There was a bit of that too. But there were more interesting things going on with those female characters. And I can't claim credit for this. Somebody suggested to me on Twitter that, um, and in fact, it was Avon Master, a Canadian academic, who said that she thought that what they were doing with Artia was kind of rolling together a few very well-known female women we know about from antiquity, like Sempronia and Clodia, who certainly were given the reputations of acting outside of that very narrowly prescribed role for women who you know, had extramarital affairs, who did actually take an interest in and, as the Romans saw it, meddled in politics, or at least our sources see it. So there are aspects of that being fed into Artia. So she is a, a really significant character, and it's great to see a woman having that kind of power And having spoken to some of the people who were involved in making it and knowing that they had to fight to keep those female characters in there being so prominent that there was a Mm. lot of pressure for them to kind of write that out and concentrate more on the men, I really appreciate that they managed to do that. So I've got a little bit of mixed feelings. I mean, it's mostly about the clothing. You know, I, I think I said this at the beginning, that respectable Roman women don't wear skimpy clothing like that. I've managed to let that go now. I can live with it. (laughs) But I do think there are much more interesting things going on than I initially thought with the women kind of being eye candy. They're much more than that. I like that about it. I've always liked the fact that we're getting some insight into the kind of ordinary, uh, and then not so ordinary, especially in the case of Varenus, Roman soldier, and how they might function both in and outside of warfare and their aspirations and the fact that it comes from two characters who have a very small role in Caesar's Gallic War. I really love that, that they've kind of taken them and expanded them. 
Mm. You know, would you know a little bit about them and about the impetuousness uh, of one of them? And they've turned them into fully rounded characters. So those are the things I really, really liked. Do you want to add anything to that? Or do you want me? I feel like I've talked and talked and talked. What did you like? I agree with you on, on those fronts. Uh, do you think that the problem or the challenge of showing women in a story such as this is that it's essentially a historical adaptation of all these sources that we have and the sources that we have primarily ignore women? Well, our sources ignored them much more than we would like. We'd like to have more information. And, you know, we don't have any surviving texts written by women or very, so very few. We have inscriptions, we have the odd poem, but we know there was more and we know we've lost it. So that's a huge problem. And that's a huge problem as well when you're looking at slaves or, you know, anything outside of really a lot outside of senatorial men. That it's not that there's nothing, it's just it's harder to find and you have to you have to be creative, I guess. You have to look very carefully at archaeological or inscriptional evidence. On that note then, then they have been creative in this. They have yeah. made more about the women than the historical sources have given us. But then they've been creative with those historical sources, haven't they? Even when you've got uh, the full story or, or mm. several versions of what uh, happened to Caesar and what Caesar did. They've decided to leave things out. I guess, I guess they've got more opportunities to leave things out rather than fill them in with our well-known male characters. I think it's always a problem. I think, especially considering this is, what, 15, 16 years ago now, they actually did a pretty good job of giving us some, some rounded characters who were either slaves or freedmen or ex-soldiers or women of different levels in society as well. So we see some slaves, we see... Niobe is a free woman, but she's not of high status. So I like that we got different levels of society in that way, including with the women. I was less keen on the catfight between Artia and Servilia because that does seem like a trope that comes up. Oh, they're women, so they're going to have this, you know, this rivalry over a man. And even mm. though Artia isn't looking to get Caesar into bed, so it's not a kind of sexual conflict. There's still tension over who's going to have most influence over him, I guess. Not even that. It's just wanting his attention. Mm, no, I think she realises that her way to power, Artia realises her way to power is through Caesar. That was my impression, pulling me away from Servilia. Maybe there are other ways of reading it. Pretty quickly, you kind of forget that it was even about that. It just becomes they niggle and dig at each other and sometimes much worse. I mean, what happens to Servilia where she's, uh, she's attacked in the street and physically abused. It was kind of appalling. It did, however, give us that great scene where she wrote the curse and got it delivered into the kind of little gaps in the wall in Artia's house. That was one of my ah. favorite parts of, of, of all of this. See, the, the, the curse predated the street shaming. Yeah. Oh, did it? it I've misremembered. Yeah. Yeah, so it was just a massive back and forth catfight mm -hmm. with poor Octavia being caught in the middle of it. Yeah. The other part of that is, I mean, we mentioned in, in our episode, on the last episode in season one, that possibly the relationship between Octavia and Servilia is there. I, I can't believe this would be the whole reason, but it's the means of transmission of the story about Niobe um, having mm. an illegitimate son. So Octavia tells Servilia and then Servilia gets to make strategic use of that to drag Varanus away from the Senate when Caesar's going to be assassinated. 
surely there are simpler ways of doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that lesbian relationships existed in ancient Rome. There are there are signs of it, although because our texts are pretty much all male authored, they're very confused. Uh, <laughs> and there's no reason for us to think that there isn't lesbianism in Rome as there is in, in many societies. But I just don't know what that added. I don't know why they were going there. That did seem titillating, mm. kind of gratuitous to me. I don't think you have a very high opinion of that particular storyline either. No. Um, and I I just don't like how, you know, there, there were some scenes where they interrupted the action just to show the action, yeah. you know? It was so, yeah, It's it was just, why are they doing this? I mean, you know, anyway. <laughs> yeah, no. It was a really good show, except when it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, I guess if a show is kind of trashy all the way through, then you don't really notice. If there was any trashiness going on, then I think the way that the, the women's relationships were depicted was part of that. This is going to seem sound really snotty, but it seemed very soap opera. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I know that some some people watch and enjoy soap operas, and that's fine. Soap operas seem to have certain tropes that come up, and occasionally HBO Rome seemed to feed into that, and that didn't mm. didn't seem to fit well with what it was elsewhere. Yeah, when it's setting you up with expectations of the show being one thing, and then it goes, "Oh, look, we're going to show you this bit," that can really take you out of it. Mm. Yeah, but you know, without that, you wouldn't have got. Artia and Sevilla in there as much. You probably wouldn't have got Sevilla in there at all, really. Well, I mean, arguably there are there are other ways of showing that they are manipulating behind the scenes, succeeding or sometimes losing against male characters, but it seemed like they could only interact with their own kind. On the other hand, you know, you've heard of the Bechdel test. There are two women who talk to each other. <laughs> but it was always about Caesar. <laughs> well, they don't actually talk about him, but yeah, your interpretation is probably right. It is always about him, really. So, so maybe it's uh, it doesn't pass the test. <laughs> but I, I like the way that the series handled what some people call the war to war history, the military and the political aspects of this time period, um, and in a way. Part of what was good about that is that it wasn't just that because we were getting these other characters and other perspectives on it. I think what I particularly liked was, say, another really iconic moment in Roman history, the crossing of the Rubicon, that we saw that through the eyes of Varenus. Varenus and Pullo, they were in a cart together, if I remember properly. This is the problem with doing a, a roundup when it's uh, months ago I saw some of these episodes. But they go across I the little stream that is the Rubicon isn't Polo's very ill or is it Varanus? Oh dear, I should have done my homework. I actually anyway. can't remember them doing that at all. I think it I think they, they might have done, you know, just Mark Antony going, Oh, we crossed the Rubicon overnight to Caesar. You know, it was just really played down. I'm pretty sure that we saw Varenus and Polo taken across it, but people can correct me if I've misremembered there. Maybe that's what I wanted to see. And of course we know at that point that and this has been part of the whole series, that Varenus deeply disapproves of this because he's, mm. as we're told early on, a Catonian. He's a believes <laughs> very strongly in the rules of the Republic. You might want to argue that this is this is Polo's show that he's the centre, and I think there's an argument for that. But part of it is the kind of tragedy of Varenus or the, the transformation of Varenus, not only mm. the tragedy of his personal life, but also that he goes from having strong beliefs in the traditional Roman Republic 
to being Caesar's right hand man, being made a senator by him. He mm. kind of lifted up and sort of tempted by what Caesar can offer him to some people would say sell out. I feel that that storyline of Venus and Pullo, while I liked it, it kind of felt like they didn't know what to do with those two characters. I know those two characters were the main characters and you could say that the entire show revolved around them to a certain extent, but they changed so much from episode to episode. Not the characters so much, maybe just where they were placed and what they were doing and their position in society even changed from episode to episode, mostly to conveniently shoehorn them in the historical action. Did you feel it was a bit Forrest Gumpy at points? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Always got to be there in the action, in the main things that are happening. For example, this feels like a pop quiz, but I need some quick years off the top of your head. Year seven of Caesar's Gallic War, when Vercingetorix surrenders, would have been... 52. 52. And Caesar's death? Is in 44. In 44. So eight years in between those. So you've got eight years of events compressed in 12 episodes. And I guess a lot can happen to two jobbing soldiers during a civil war and lots of upheaval during that time. So am I not giving them enough credit? Well... That's the thing about TV and film, isn't it? Extraordinary events happen that probably didn't happen to the vast majority of people. Otherwise, it's not very interesting. If mm. if Varinus had gone home and been happy enough to work in the butcher's shop with his wife, where do you go? <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> it becomes a bit mundane. <laughs> so, yeah, while it occasionally it does seem shoehorned that they're there at the right time when a big event happens... I think part of what they're showing is the mobility of characters like that. So literal mobility, they get to travel around Europe because they're going to fight in different places, not just Europe, in Africa too, but also potential for social mobility, which is kind of just starting now and will happen more under the emperors. But, you know, there's a lot of lot of hand-wringing about what's going to happen to veterans what's going to happen to soldiers once they're not fighting anymore we've got to find land for them we've got to find something for them to do we've got you know if they still if they're still a standing army they could be a supporter of this warlord and therefore there'll be more wars so they're kind of characters who figure in all of that what do soldiers do next mm. um, and at one point of course all they can do is go back into the army and yeah. take part of the civil wars which is convenient for our narrative which does lead me into the other thing that we com we complained about, we talked about, we mentioned at the time we wanted to see more battle scenes. We know exactly why that didn't happen because it's too expensive. Yes. Um, but it would have been nice to see what they could have done with that, given how big their budget was. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, Although um, it, was, it was Adrian Hodges who told us that there was a big battle scene filmed that never got used. Was mm. uh, that footage? Yeah. The other thing that kind of didn't sit completely well with me is uh, the amount of jobs that Varinus had during the course of the series. It was a lot. It was a lot. Did you feel he was in some reality series where he had to try a different one out every week? <laughs> <laughs> Undercover pleb. Yeah, sure. <laughs> a couple of things that I thought that we could talk about uh, in this episode. If you could give a character a prequel series or a spin-off, which would it be? Well, I had no ideas about this, but as we've been talking, I've been thinking maybe Artia's younger life 
would be interesting. Mm. I mean, we never hear anything about her husband, about Octavius, who is, you know, Octavian and Octavia's dad. But presumably she was married off in that way that uh, Niobe and Varinus were talking about marrying off their daughter. And yet she, at least in terms of the series, becomes this very manipulative, savvy character. So the Mm. development, her development might be quite interesting. Okay. I would like to see young Cicero. (laughs) Surely presented as the most boring character. I want the Catalan conspiracy. You want his consulship. He would love that you want his consulship. (laughs) I think it would make a good law and order legal drama. (laughs) (laughs) That actually would be kind of fun. These are the streets of Rome and these are their stories. Dun, dun. <laughs> you know what else it could do? Because the, there's the scholarship now that, so the Catalan conspiracy is from 63 BC, the year of, of Cicero's consulship. And it plays into some of the tensions we've got here because it's apparently this aristocratic conspiracy of a populist to kind of overturn the state. Overturn the state. But the account we have is of Cicero's. So you could also do a kind of, I mean, you wouldn't have as many perspectives, but you could do a sort of Rashomon. Was it really that? Or was Catalan mm. just misunderstood? You don't want that. Yeah. You want Cicero's version. <laughs> no, actually, I think that that'd be good. Some of the best TV shows are the ones that make you hate the villain. And I'm using quotation fingers there. Or make them so relatable that you buy into their story. And yeah, I think that you would completely need to do that with Catalan. That's what the shows like The Sopranos, mm-hmm. you know, you relate to... Tony Soprano, you absolutely hate him at the same time. Mm. That's what that show does. Uh, there's so many shows that do it now. Um, Boardwalk Empire did the same sort of thing, although Nucky Thompson wasn't the best part of that show. Everyone else around him was. It's it's a, a common thing for dramas these days to make something great of the villain of the piece. So, yeah. He-Man, guess- Masters of the Universe did it. Skeletor. I was always in Camp Skeletor. <laughs> The devil has all the best lines. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess you could also, with your idea for a series, are you pitching this, by the way? You could also yeah, sure, make yeah. something of that, you know, Cicero having to work his way up, not being given the, not being handed a silver spoon and born into it and mm. and how he kind of fights prejudice to get there. Um, but it, in my view, also very much rigidly applies all the rules once he is there. So he's he's not really interested in there being a huge number of new men. Um, he's special. <laughs> and he got there because he's special. <laughs> um, so you could play with those tensions too. Yeah, I, th- I think it's I think it's a goer. Cool. All right, greenlit. Very glad to hear that. <laughs> uh, another thing that I wish that we saw in this that we didn't see is a scene with Caesar and Pompey. Yeah, did they never meet? Pretty sure we get nothing. Whoa. Yeah. Ah. Given that, and we did see this at the beginning, given that Caesar was Pompey's (laughs) father-in-law, they had reasons Mm. to meet. I mean, that was a problem of chronology at the beginning where I think the first time we see Pompey, it's when Julia, his wife, is giving birth and she dies. That's right. That's kind of of the end of the Caesar-Pompey relationship. It's accepted by historians that that is one of the things that broke their alliance apart. When Caesar gets to Rome, Pompey's already left, chases him on the battlefield. We never get a scene of them meeting at any point or trying to come to terms, which would have been, even that would have been nice. 
The only scene where very technically they do meet is when Caesar pulls his head out of the jar in Egypt at the oh. end of, <laughs> and that was that was it. Yeah, yeah. So there was no scene. What would have been nice, uh, if nothing else, would have been a um, a flashback to a hill somewhere with uh, the triumvirate realizing that they are not going to be friends anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a relationship that breaks down, but is already broken down in mm. where we start. So we want to start a little bit earlier, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Like. Oh, I've got one more spin-off series. This one's oh, a good. proper spin-off series. I want the newsreader. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all want the newsreader. What, what would uh, you have him do? Walking around Rome, trying to get the news, but being caught up in wacky detective hijinks at the same time. Oh, so it's going to be a cookie comedy. <laughs> I, th I think it would be be a comedy, but, you know, at the same time, I think you could, like, write it really well, like the West Wing kind of drama, the snappy script writing and everything like that. Yeah, I think that that would be really cool. Well, I'll accept that as long as we can have a little bit of oratory training so I can show it to my students. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he's training a, uh, a newbie. You could show them how it's done. I would also like to see what he's like when he's not on the the rostrum. Is that the thing? It, the, well, the pedestal? Yeah, I, I guess he is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's on the speaker's so, platform. It's usually yeah. where politicians speak from, but yeah, that's, that seems to be where they put him. So once he turns all that off, what he's like? Because I'm, mm. I'm sure he doesn't, you know, does he speak like that all the time? <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, would that be on his family? <laughs> yeah, There'd be no a lot doubt. of pots getting knocked over with the arm movements. <laughs> Those are my ideas. Well, I think they're great. I think yeah. you need to write them in to uh, HBO or similar. There's so many streaming services now. They must all be looking for stuff to do. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Let's make that happen. All right. Um, what are you looking forward to in season two now that we're at the point that we're at? And I have some memories, but I'm not going to spoil them because you have no memories by the sound I have of it. No, I never have any memories, apparently. I'm looking to Octavian developing into an even more manipulative I won't say a swear word, but he basically <laughs> does, uh, I presume, getting very good at propaganda, at, uh, you know, reading people, at knowing who to take on as a friend and who to very ruthlessly cut off. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if we get far enough to see the full fruits of that. I guess I'm, I don't know if looking forward is the right phrase, but I hope there's the outcome of Brutus's storyline i anticipate that potentially there's a way of just getting rid of that storyline if they just decide to announce what happens in the conflict that's going to follow i don't think that's a spoiler. there's conflict could, coming up it could um, all happen off screen though couldn't it yeah it could all happen off screen that's what i mean thank you you yeah. put it much more succinctly but you know i think that brutus has been so interesting in this series that i'd like to see his story out to the end and then of course if we do get that i'm sure we'll get the effect on Servilia. Because her mm. relationship with him has been so touchy, really interesting too. You know, she's disappointed in him. She loves him. When he came back from war, remember, her feelings are very, very mixed. So I think yeah. that could be really interesting. And they're two such amazing actors. I'm going to miss Caesar so much. I'm mm. not really sure I can cope without Caesar being there. 
Mm. Uh, but we're going to have to because he's not coming back. That's not a spoiler. He's definitely it's, dead. It's a big imperial-shaped hole he leaves in the show. I hope we get to see his uh, deification. Mm. The, the thing that proves yeah. he's a god now. Yeah, circling back to what we were talking about earlier, one thing that I uh, think that this show also could have done with is I think that season one should have finished with Caesar becoming the dictator mm. and and for season two to be Caesar the dictator leading up to his death. Oh, they you, really, you really want to, want to um, stretch things out a lot more, a whole series on what was, what, two or three episodes? Well, yeah, yeah. It would have given that a lot more breathing room. It would have given Brutus a lot more to do. Uh, it would have given us an extra season of Kieran Hines as Caesar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, you know, I, I think it would have done the show a lot better. I, I think one thing that I've consistently said in every episode of Raising Standards is this feels rushed. Mm-hmm. Why are we in such a hurry to get through all of this? Let's take our I, time. Show me the crimes th- that the newsreader is solving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, it's really hard to tell, isn't it? I mean, one of the reasons it seems rushed is because you know more about what's in the sources. Mm. Because after all, in the end, this is not aimed at you and me. This is aimed at people who don't know that much about Roman history properly. No, Which is not it's... to say it's not great when they get it right, uh, or whatever right means, or they, they choose to buy into what the sources say or to play around with them. But I wonder if it feels rushed if you don't know that, you know, what they've covered there in five minutes is three books of Caesar's Civil Wars or something. Look, I hazard the guess that those people are not listening to this podcast. Oh, okay. We're all educated listeners, so I'm sorry that I, um, yeah. (laughs) Speaking of educated listeners, shall we take a few questions from Mm. our lovely audience at this point? Okay, so the first question that we'll take is from uh, Cheryl Watson. She asks, were there any real public figures that were not included in the series because it would have altered the plot? So is there anyone that you think that you would have liked to have seen? I would have liked to have seen Fulvia, Mark Antony's wife. Oh, I'm yeah. I'm desperately cycling backwards and think, yeah, yeah, she's definitely still alive at this point. Yeah. Who may, well, ooh, is she coming up in series two? That's what I want to see in series two, because she actually engages in uh, one of the wars that happens after this. She hasn't been introduced so far, so I don't know. So another woman that you know is a really interesting figure we we don't know as much about her as we'd like as usual but i think they could potentially do really interesting things with her one that i think that uh could have been shown but i understand why it would have made things more complicated to show actually both of these are one's lepidus mm-hmm. so lepidus was uh, a roman general who was close to caesar and mark antony so he would have been mixing it up in those scenes there with him uh, and then later on he became one of the triumvirs so he was involved in the the power struggle between Mark Antony and Octavian so they've sliced that all out because it's a lot simpler I guess to not have it in there yeah yeah it's part of the simplification process I know who I'd want to see and it would change what We'll change what they'd had to do with the series in a major way. I want Crassus, but it's not. Here's my other one. Oh, really? I stole your other yeah. one. Yeah, no, well, that's can fine. I t- <laughs> can I tell you why he can't be there and why they'd have a major change? 
because it starts in 52 BC and he had died brutally in 53 mm. BC. So he's already yeah. dead. You know, being just unbelievably rich, I think that would have been fun to look at because um, that's what he's known for. And he's also mm. fighting a war against the Parthians where he gets killed in this awful way where they apparently um, put molten gold down his throat. As a Very kind of, HBO. You know, it, is, it kind of is, yeah. I mean, he's as a sort of getting back at the richest man in the world. Can mm. you eat gold? Ha, 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 ha. And the Parthians had a sense of humour. So <laughs> not that I want to see brutal scenes, but that one just seems so ironic and I'm sure they'd have done it very well. And I just think he's a really interesting character. But I guess it's, again, about simplification. I mean, simplification of the timeline, but they start a little bit later. Mm. And also of that breakdown between Pompey and Caesar and having a third wheel in there, I guess, would have complicated things for them because... He, just to explain for anyone who doesn't know, Crassus, Caesar and Pompey had formed this kind of unofficial first triumvirate that it doesn't have the kind of seal of approval that the one that's coming up between Octavian, Antony and Lepidus will have. It's not formalised in that way, but it's basically it's basically an illegal power sharing arrangement, mm. um, which works for about six years and then falls apart because they all want power. Yeah, that would have been good to see. Who would you have cast? Hmm. Well, he's a soldier, you know, he's a general, but he's also somebody known for ex extravagance or certainly extreme wealth. Robert Downey it Jr. Oh, maybe, maybe. That would he can't good. do accents, though. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Rome was very inconsistent with its accents. I think was they it? just... <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, yeah, there was the Italian and British thing going on. Nobody had an American accent. I mean, not that no. there's any reason why they shouldn't, but they just didn't go with that, so it would, have seemed, it would seem a bit out of place. We need suggestions from the public as to who should play Crassus. <laughs> oh, I've got it. I've got it. Peter Capaldi. Oh, yeah, actually, yeah. He might have to yeah. put on weight. I mean, not that Crassus was known for being fat, although his name does mean fat, but I just think... <laughs> <laughs> just think he'd probably have indulged a bit in he could nail he could nail it yeah he'd um, be very good at that just on the thing of accents and nationality of the actors i think i don't know if they were trying to say something by doing this all the slaves are italians mm. yeah that's right that was a marker was yeah sort of ethnic marker for us not that they're necessarily of the same ethnicity at all no, because uh, Irene was um, meant to be, you know, from Illyria or something like that. And on that note, I am curious to see what will happen to Posca in season two. I assume that he'll be owned by Octavian. Yeah. You know Just what? By inheritance. I, I realise that I've now I'm unclear as to whether Posca is a, he is a slave, isn't he? He's not a freedman. No, he's definitely a slave. He sees a slave. He's a mouthy slave. <laughs> he's well, definitely a slave. It's quite possible that Caesar will free him in his will, which is very oh, common. Okay. And the other thing that I'm looking forward to seeing is more of Timon, who we did not get enough of in this season. That's right. We should have had more of Timon. So well, that is, uh, are you telling me that's going to happen or are yes. you getting me excited? Yeah. No, I, I do remember we get a lot more. He gets stuff to do besides Artia. <laughs> that was perfectly timed because you were about to take a drink of water and i almost wish this was a visual medium and not an audio podcast 
<laughs> I have no comment on that. <laughs> An appalling thing to say, <laughs> but also funny. Okay. We've got a question here from uh, Marty from Lincoln, Nebraska, who actually asks why Crassus wasn't in it. So, um, yeah, shout out to uh, Marty for preempting us there with that. Uh, he plays an important role in history covered in season one. He only gets one brief mention. There you go. When Anthony is threatening Cicero in season two, I guess we've got oh, well, that look, to look forward to. I look forward to at least the brief mention of uh, yeah. the, the call back to Crassus. We've got a question here from Christopher Holman in Sweden. I realise that HBO took their liberty with exact historical data to create the drama, but were there any scenes or parts of series that you think communicated the Roman society in a good way, architecture, behaviour, equipment, civil or military, and so on? Yeah, I do. I like the way it portrayed just the different households, both Mm. the appearance of them, so... We did get the idea that, say, Artia's house was the house of someone much more aristocratic. You know, the way that the walls were painted, the the kind of furniture that it had, lots of slaves around, as opposed to, say, Varinus's house, which is much more humble. And that we did get to see that slightly more slummy side of Rome. It's the Aventine, isn't it? Because that's what he says. The Aventine. He, yeah. he says, "My wife was born here in in the Aventine area." So I like that we didn't just get to see the aristocratic and the kind of mud of the military. Because if you think of some Roman epics, say Gladiator, well, I guess you get the scenes of the gladiators, which is not very glamorous when they're in their cells. But apart from that, it's all the palace or they're out on campaign. So it's kind of the mud and dirt of the German campaign. But we got kind of ordinary people's lives in this, which I liked. And I thought they did the architecture fairly well. And, you know, just the child running through the streets, things like that. You got to see the streets of Rome. And I also thought that they did fairly well with showing us that difference in status and the big dividing line between free and slave and the very casual cruelty or outright brutality towards slaves that nobody then comments on. Mm. Nobody makes any pronouncements or, or reads anyone's character in a negative way from their treatment of slaves which I think is quite a brave thing to do because it's hard for us to continue to empathise with those characters when we've seen someone casually slap a slave. Even, Kill a slave, yeah, yeah, and it just be treated as property. It seems to reflect exactly what we know of, of slave societies generally, not just Rome. There were some really nice scenes where they put a lot of effort into, you know, just what was going on in the background, just incidental scenery yeah. kind of things in the streets of Rome. So I'm thinking uh, in particular the day after the triumph when the newsreader is uh, there in the forum and it's just covered in a stupid amount of rose petals because, of course, you'd get debris from the public celebration, wouldn't you? In the scene where Sevilla is assaulted, uh, which was very graphic and confronting, but it's happening in the backdrop of all these statues being carved. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and just all the, all the chiseling, the little chink, 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 as uh, Timon was walking through the streets there. These statues it, don't come from nowhere, do they? They've got to be made somewhere. And, and probably related to that, in the episode that we uh, just spoke about previous to this, uh, the calends of February, when Varinus is walking to the Senate uh, at the end, before the the big finale, he walks past men who are raising a column. You know, there's so many men involved in this. There's winches, there's pulleys. They're really seriously considering it. And I'm just there 
thinking that would have taken so long for them to set up and film that I love that they went to that effort. So, yeah. The crane in that scene is based on a crane that we've got on a relief sculpture. There you so, go. Yeah, which I think is from the is from the tomb of an engineer. I may have, mis- have misremembered that. I didn't look it up. I could picture in my head exactly where they were taking that from. So mm. it was really lovely to see. And, and how, are you quite right how much effort was involved in it, but also how how good the technology was that they could do it at all. Yeah. Uh, the next question that we'll take uh, will be Todd Feeney's from Salt Lake City in Utah, USA. And that is, uh, these are about the nuts and bolts of making these. You're asking me for trade secrets here, Todd. How easy, and I question the word easy, was it to get the interviews with the various actors? And I guess you've got uh, writers and directors associated here as well. You've got to answer this one because you put all the effort in, Matt. It was really hard. (laughs) I'm really happy with what we managed to get in this show, uh, who we managed to speak to, and really grateful for the time that those people took. And it really shows the amount of love and affection I think that they have for the show and for the roles that they played and the effort they put into their performance that they're willing to talk to a couple of podcasters about a show that's 16 years old at this point. But yeah, um, it wasn't easy. Sometimes it really was, you know, I could find out how to get in touch with the person's agent and the agent would reply to an email and the person would be eager and happy to speak. A couple of them I managed to trawl on Facebook and message and there were a couple of people whose email addresses I guessed. So I should probably shouldn't say that. Uh, One thing that I wish that I could have got and, um, you know, besides Kieran Hines and everyone else that I missed out on getting and wasn't able to get in touch with uh, is any woman, whether they be a cast member, there might have been a writer, there might have been a producer. It's a very male heavy show on screen and off screen. And I don't know if there's aspects about that relating to why none of the women wanted to speak on the podcast and i did get a couple of no's and i got one maybe that might pan out but we'll see what happens we would love to talk to one of the women involved in the show but there may be reasons they've moved on i mean it is a long time ago and i was quite surprised at the actors in particular i don't know anybody involved was still willing to talk to us and it's a testament to your persistence matt but um (laughs) you know matt didn't have to edit out horrible stuff Everybody was lovely that we spoke to. Um, yeah. They were really keen and had mostly fond memories and were also just willing to give us loads of time. So when they were willing to get back in touch, it was a great experience. So mm. I'm very glad that you persisted, Matt. Oh, it's, it's, it's definitely been worth it. It's been great to, you know, kind of learn that aspect of the show as well. And, uh, yeah, I hope people have liked listening to that. Uh, and then Laurie from Canberra, but I know that this question has been asked a few times, at least to me. I'm sure you've got the question as well. What are your plans for these kind of podcasts once you finish HBO Rome? Would you consider Domina or another time-focused TV show? Sliders? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've got season two to do. We yeah, I know. whether we're doing it. Presumably we are. <laughs> <laughs> Considering I've got two interviews recorded, uh, yeah, look, I'd hope we, we, we're going to do season two. 
So I guess, you know, given it has taken us a while to do season series one, then well, that is our immediate plan and we mm. probably should look too far ahead. And I think it's it's hard, it's particularly hard on Matt doing this as well as the regular podcast and all of his many other many other podcasts that he has when we say occasional (laughs) you can see that we mean occasional there's a part of me that wants to go look at barbarians or something like that something set outside of rome i we haven't actually talked about this so i have no idea whether you're interested matt ask us in 18 months time when we get to the end of season two maybe there'll be something else fascinating on tv well by then i'll be producing my cicero prequel (laughs) <laughs> oh, of course, you'll, you'll be otherwise occupied. <laughs> yes, I will be. The Book of Catiline, I will call it. Cicero's <laughs> a bigger name. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know, but I want to subvert expectations, you know? Yeah, but you won't get any viewers. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 I, I would. I wouldn't even call Cicero by the name Cicero until the end of the first season because he won't have earned that until then. And everyone okay. will just be referring to Marcus, who's carrying the scrolls. Mm, they call him Tullius. <laughs> well, there you go, Tullius. <laughs> Tully, Tully, who's carrying Tully, the scrolls. Tully. Yeah. yeah. So thanks for those questions. Um, we really hope you've enjoyed our little look through this first series. Thanks for sticking with us because it took us a while. And we are looking forward to series two, but we're making no promises about when it'll happen. Hello, Rhiannon. Hey, Matt. I would like to record just a little bit more for our season wrap-up because I thought of something. This has been sprung upon me. (laughs) I know, I know. Well, that's the best way to to kind of bounce Mm. ideas off you. Uh, During our season wrap-up podcast, we were talking about things that we would have liked to have seen in season one that weren't included for one reason or another, uh, streamlining of the plot, etc., but are historically accurate. And um, this also comes back to what we were saying about Uh, involving women more in the plot, which Mm -hmm. would have been nice and giving them something to do. I would have liked to have seen Cleopatra's sister. Yeah, that was a whole subplot. Yeah. Potential subplot that we didn't have. Mm -hmm. So this is Arsinoe IV, who was caught up in the family dynastic kind of struggle with Mm -hmm. Cleopatra and her brother Ptolemy, and possibly another Ptolemy. Is that right? There was a couple of Ptolemies kicking it around. (laughs) Well, it was her father and her two brothers. Mm. It was a family tree that made myself feel much better about myself. (laughs) Uh, So she was against Cleopatra and she lost. And Caesar took her prisoner and paraded her in his triumph along with Vercingetorix. Yeah. Good way to make this a a triumph involving other foreign powers. Yes, yes. of a civil war. And it was like a quadruple triumph, if I remember correctly, like, you know, four military victories of Caesar. And uh, also at that time in Rome was Cleopatra in our historical sources. She had gone back with Caesar to Rome and she was there until after his death, in which case she made herself very scarce. But it would have been good to see Arsinoe, and also for Cleopatra to be in Rome because then you would have had that extra dynamic. Yeah. And there are sources that could have been used there because Cicero writes some very nasty letters about how she's still in Rome, what she's doing, and why does Caesar have her installed here? Yeah. They definitely have looked at Cicero's letters for other aspects of what they've done. Mm-hmm. But it's part of the slim lining, you know, the missing out of our sinewy and the dropping Cleopatra 
to bring her back in series two, mm. but not having her as the rest of Caesar's plotline. Yeah, yeah. It would have maybe have given uh, Atia and Sevilla something else to mm. do, as in, oh, look, there's an extra woman vying for Caesar's attention that we could be annoyed at. Yeah. But that doesn't help with the fact that there's still women talking about a man's plot. <laughs> so Yeah, and look, this is one of the issues with dealing with the kind of sources we have. Mm. When you try to insert women into the plot, you've still mostly got them talking about men's issues or, as you say, trying to attract their attention. Mm. Yeah. You know, we've said at times that Artia Sevilla is a bit of a catfight motif. It just would have extended that it three ways. A, a cat rumble? It would have been nasty. <laughs> A uh, feline toi. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, that's the extra thing. Okay, we can go and record the first episode of season two, Raising Standards Now. Let's do that. All right, off we go. You've been listening to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can like Raising Standards on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page, and you can follow both myself and Rhiannon on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it today for Raising Standards. So until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening. <laughs>